So one very famous saying of Jesus is that we, the church, are the light of the world. Right? And some of you know the words, right? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And in fact, he goes on to say that when you light a lamp, nobody lights a lamp and they hide it under a basket, right? We, do, we, we light a lamp and when we take the basket off, we put it in the room and we want it to shine to the whole world. And in the same way, the church is meant to shine in the world. When we gather like this, it's a living testimony to the world. And when we go out into the world, we go out as lights in the world. Now, that's a beautiful picture, and that is something I know many of you as Christians aspire to. And one of the questions we often have is, okay, how do we do that in the real world? What does it look like to live as a light in the world? And we're going to get a very practical answer to that today as we continue through this story of Joseph that we have been walking through. Joseph has shown us many things throughout his journey into Egypt and soon will be uh, lifted up very high. Uh, We have been taught by this book of Genesis to expect a mighty Savior King to come from this line and to redeem the world from all of its troubles. And we are getting a figure like this at the end, as if the book is whispering, this is what he is going to look like. And so we have seen as Joseph was destined to be exalted, but hated by the brothers he was among. We saw a picture of Jesus destined to be exalted, but hanging, hated by his Jewish brothers who were near him. And then we saw him sold for silver into slavery, just as our Lord was sold for silver into the hands of the Roman guards. And we saw him brought low as Jesus was brought low. We saw God be with him as he was brought low, as he was with Jesus. And now we're going to see a dramatic turn of events. Now, it's been rough walking together through Joseph's hardships, digging up our own hardships in our history. But today we see the very dramatic turn when Joseph is suddenly lifted above everyone as our Lord was lifted from the bottom of the pit up above everyone. If you're just joining us, we're walking through the ending to the book of Genesis, in which a man like Joseph is made like Jesus in many ways that you and I as Christians are being made like Jesus. Today and next week, we will see how we are like Jesus and how Joseph is like Jesus in our exaltation and in his exaltation and glorification. Let's read of Joseph's dramatic turn of events. We'll read most of chapter 41, but at one point I will skip a few verses that we will come back to next week. Let me give you the preface first. As we last left Joseph, uh, he was in a prison cell. Uh, He had been falsely accused, put in prison, and he had done a great favor for Pharaoh's cupbearer. And so he asked the cupbearer, will you remember me before Pharaoh? Uh, I'm not supposed to be here in this prison. Will you remember me? And Pharaoh can lift me up out of the prison. The cupbearer was brought back into Joseph's presence, but he forgot about Joseph. So Joseph is just left there, abandoned. Now we get to chapter 41, where we read, after two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh woke. And then he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. 
And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I saw also in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered and thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, as I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And then Pharaoh, Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east winds are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to anoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it, that the food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are about to occur in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, 
there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as it regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it in Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt." And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. So Joseph went over, out over the land of Egypt. Let's move to verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. We'll stop there today. So what's going on there is through Joseph's spirit-given wisdom and spirit-given fruitfulness, The Spirit casts a vision for a wise and fruitful church. We have said all along the way, we have talked together about how Joseph's sufferings point to Jesus' sufferings. And Joseph's anointing from the Holy Spirit points to Jesus' anointing from the Holy Spirit. And in this story, Joseph pictures Jesus in the way he has been, though lowered, suddenly lifted over everyone. He was doing well, destined to rule in a great family, but he was lowered into slavery. And then he was doing pretty well in slavery, but then lowered even further into the pit, into the prison. But in a quick turn of events, the Pharaoh has raised him up and made him second in the kingdom so that everybody bows their knee to Joseph. This makes the heart long for a great and mighty one who is lowered the way that Jesus in Philippians 2 it is said uh, he was very God and very nature but took on the form of a servant walking around in human flesh and then being found in the likeness of men was lowered even more subject to death even to death on a cross but then God highly exalted him gave him the name above all names so that the name of Jesus now Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have been told the whole way to look for this mighty Savior King, and now we have one more picture of what he will be like. So Old Testament Israel can long for some king to come and be like this, and we can look back and say, we know somebody like that. We know his name is Jesus Christ. So we're going to spend the next two Sundays looking at this story and several details in it that point us to Jesus. Because, as it were, the Lord has his church going through a very similar process. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which starts out as the smallest of all seeds, but eventually is the greatest of all trees. And in very similar ways, the church is often brought low in the world, but one day will be lifted above all. One day, risen from the dead, 
given glorified bodies, led to rule and reign under Jesus in a new creation. What was once a mustard seed will one day be a mustard tree. And so there are at least two ways that Joseph's glorification in this story, the way he is lifted up in this story, points to ways the church is lifted up today. And there are several ways Joseph being lifted up in this story points to ways we will be lifted up tomorrow when Jesus comes back. So we're going to split those in two. We will look at the way that the Lord lifts the church up today in today's sermon. And then next week, we'll look at the ways the Lord lifts the church up tomorrow. Let's walk quickly through the story. In the first 39 verses, most of the drama takes place. The Pharaoh has a dream. He sees seven, it says, plump and beautiful cows come out of the river, and they begin to feed on the grass there. And he knows what this means, right? Plenty, food. And so he is standing there thinking, all right, I'm going to name this one ribeye, and I'm going to name this one brisket, and I'm going to name this one liver and onions for somebody else. I don't know. And while he's doing this, seven thin cows come out of the river. And he's concerned, and then then the seven thin cows eat up the seven plump cows, and they're still thin. You can't even tell that they ate the plump cows. And then he wakes up alarmed. He falls back asleep again, has a very similar dream, but this time it's ears of grain, first plump and beautiful and then blighted by the east wind. So he's very concerned. He brings it before all of his wise men and all of his magicians, and they don't have an answer for him. They can't tell him what this dream means. So at this point, the chief cupbearer, this is one of the chief advisors of the Pharaoh, the one who takes his goblet and puts it in his hand. Uh, so he's always right next to him, there to answer a question, there to give him counsel. The cupbearer says, oh, actually, I should have told you two years ago, but I forgot. I know a Hebrew man from when I was in prison, and he was able to interpret dreams for us. So this is the moment then when Pharaoh reaches down to the pit and pulls Joseph out of prison, has him quickly clean shaved, has him quickly put in nice garments and brought into the presence of the king. And he says to him, I've heard that you can interpret dreams. Can you interpret dreams for me? And Joseph says to him very clearly, actually, no, I can't. That ability is not in me, but the Lord will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Very clear in the beginning. This is not a superpower I have. I'm not like a a mutant from X-Men who can interpret dreams. The Lord will give a favorable answer to you. Pharaoh tells him the dreams. Joseph hears and he says, well, here's the interpretation. Uh, The Lord has fixed what he is about to do. There's going to be seven years of great plenty, plenty like you've never had in the land. And then seven years of famine so severe that you will forget the seven years of plenty, kind of like those cows were still thin even after they ate the seven thick cows. Famine so severe that you won't even remember the plenty. So here's what to do. Find somebody who's really wise, really discerning, really trustworthy, and have them go about all the land of Egypt storing up a fifth of all the grain during the seven years of plenty. And you will have so much grain in those years that just a fifth of it will be enough to feed everybody for the seven years of famine. Pharaoh hears this and he's pleased. This young man has saved 
the day interpreting this dream for him. And so he says to him some really incredible things in verse 38 and verse 39. He says to him first in 38, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? So it's the Spirit of God that's given him this wisdom. And then in verse 39, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. So when we hear about a dream like this and the ability to interpret a dream like this, that's mostly for our minds a realm of magic, right? That's something that's like a supernatural spiritual ability that some people have. They can interpret a dream like that. For some of us, we might put it in the psychology realm. Maybe they can interpret a dream like that. But both Pharaoh and Joseph are putting it in the realm of wisdom. He's saying it's God has shown you this and there is none as wise and discerning as you. So what Joseph is showing here is a power by the Spirit of God to see deeply into the great mysteries of the universe and unravel them. So the Spirit of God is upon him, and he can see a dream like this, and through that divine power, he can say, all right, I know what it means. And then with the same divine wisdom, he can give advice and say, okay, king, here is what you need to do about what is happening. And this is why the king then responds and says, well, since God has shown you this wonderful thing, there is no one who is as wise and as discerning as you. So this is a man who, by the power of the Spirit of God, understands the way the world works and understands the things of the heavenly realms. And then, in important moments, is given great insight by God's Spirit to interpret things that are just a mystery to us. Spirit-given power to unlock the mysteries of the universe. That's an incredible thing. And it's very valuable to a ruler. So the Pharaoh takes him and he puts him up and above everybody. What we notice from that story is that God's anointed one, in this case Joseph, has spirit-given wisdom and insight. This is something he shares with his Lord, with Jesus. God's anointed one has spirit-given wisdom and insight. And something he shares with anyone who calls themselves a Christian, who is indeed a Christian with faith in Jesus Christ, full of the Spirit and given, Spirit-given wisdom and insight by God's very power. The Scriptures say this very thing of Jesus. He will come and he will rule. And Isaiah 11 says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge. The spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So the spirit that rests upon Jesus Christ in his ministry is the spirit of wisdom. Such that we hear his words and we say, there is none as wise and discerning as he is. Right? All the magicians around and all the wise men around don't have the answers to the great mysteries of the universe But Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, endowed by the Spirit, very God himself, has the answers to the mysteries of the universe. It's said of him in the Psalms, uh, fulfilling David, that he shepherds us skillfully and with wisdom. And he could walk around on earth, uh, people kind of grumbling in the backgrounds as he was speaking. And he could look at someone and say, why do you say in your heart, 
and he could just see right into their hearts. He could unlock the mysteries of the universe with insight, even into people's hearts. Why do you say in your heart that this cannot be? They would come with questions that don't have good answers, like real stumpers, and he would have answers for them every time. He could answer the unanswerable questions. They come to him at one point trying to trick him, asking him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he says yes, all the Jewish people will turn on him because now he's been loyal to their Roman overlords. If he says no, the Roman soldiers will turn on him. And for fear of that, the Jewish people might also turn on him then as well. There's no good answer to the question. So he says, bring me a coin. And they bring a coin to him and he holds it up and he says, whose picture is on this? And they say, it's Caesar's. And he says, okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So here he is with, with wisdom to just answer the unanswerable questions. Nobody else had an answer. All of Pharaoh's magicians around there did not have the answer, but Jesus, he has the answer because he's got that spirit-given insight and wisdom that we looked at and we just marvel. So what's really wonderful about this then is that same spirit, the spirit that rested on Joseph in this story and gave him that wonderful insight, the spirit that rested on Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ himself is now dwelling in every Christian. If you're here today and your faith is in Jesus, that same spirit lives within you, giving you powerful insight into the mysteries of the universe. Now, this works in two ways in Christian's life. On one sense, every Christian has the spirit living in them and has access to God's wisdom and can grow with great wisdom to answer the questions that the world around us cannot answer. And then for a few of us, some of us are actually given the spiritual gift of wisdom as well, which elevates it even another level. So let me parse those two out. We'll talk about how it's true for every Christian. And then if a few of you might have the gift of wisdom, how that might be true for you as, as well. So the, the scriptures say in the book of James that if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. He's saying this to the church, to believers. So when Christians come to God and we say, God, I, I don't have enough wisdom for this. Like there's this thing at work and I just can't figure it out. Or I have this decision to make and I don't have enough wisdom. He does not look down with contempt and say, man, I, I had really hoped you would figure that out by now. I'm so disappointed. Uh, instead of finding fault, he says, well, here you go. Here's some more wisdom. All right. So step by step, day by day, as we ask him for wisdom, he loves to give it to his people, and so he just hands it out. Christians don't receive everything that we ask for in prayer, but when we ask for wisdom, he gives it generously without finding fault. Not only that, but he has written entire books in the scripture full of wisdom. So if you want to grow in wisdom, you can open the Proverbs and just start reading. Chew on each one of those and you'll grow in wisdom every time. I turn through the book of Proverbs so many times and find new insights every time. It seems to never grow old. It never does grow old because there are always new bits of wisdom that you can gain from them. Beside those, that book is the book of Psalms and Job and, and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes where you can learn so much wisdom. It is God who wrote those books and he did it because he's generous with wisdom to his people. In fact, he inspired those words by that very same spirit 
that rested upon Joseph in this story and dwells within you right now if you are a believer. So you've got the Spirit living in you, giving you wisdom and insight. You've got your Father in heaven who loves to say yes when we ask for wisdom. And you've got Spirit-inspired wisdom here. We can drink from that, church, all that we want to. And as we do, we find the mysteries of the universe unlocked for us. Not all of them, but many. Why is it that this world is so wonderful and yet things aren't right in it? Why does evil exist in the world? Philosophers have tried to figure that out for thousands of years. But we have access by the Spirit of God through the Scriptures to the answer, don't we? Why is it that following your heart, if it's supposed to make you so happy, leads to misery? The scriptures have the answer. From the heart come all manner of wickedness and violence and corruption and immorality. The heart's a dark place. That's why following it leads to misery. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We've got the answers right there in the spirit of God within us, just just unlocking them, empowering us with spirit-given wisdom. And so you might find yourself then, uh, let's say you're at work and you've got you know one workmate over there in that desk and another workmate over here at this desk Uh, and you're friends with both of them you talk openly you talk cordially with both of them and one of them is telling you about how excited they are because they have found that though they thought their whole life that that he was a man now he's realized he was a woman the whole time and so I found this doctor who's going to give me this surgery and I'm finally going to step into who I am right and they're so excited and you're talking with them day after day year after year and a year later they're saying I got everything I want and I am sadder than I have ever been in my whole life. That doesn't make sense, right? What a, what a mystery. I got everything I wanted. Why am I, why am I so sad? And then over here in this cubicle, you got another friend, and he, uh, he graduated recently with a, with a really great degree, and now is making a lot of money, and so he's using that money to just live, just live it up, right? Go on great dates with, with women and have all kinds of fun doing this. I'm having so much fun. I'm loving it for a year, he says this, and then after a year, he says, I got everything I wanted. I mean, I dated beautiful women and had so much fun with them. And I bought everything I wanted. And I have the job I want. Why am I so unhappy? Why why didn't it make me happy? Pharaoh's magicians don't have an answer for them. I don't know, just keep following your heart and I guess you'll be happy one day. But friends, we've got the spirit of wisdom and insight within us. And that spirit wrote for us a whole book that we can draw answers out of. And so you might find yourself right there at work saying, well, I tried to follow my heart for a little while too, but it turns out the heart is a dark place and it's not worth following. And I found intimacy with the one who made me by looking away from myself and looking up to God and his glory through Jesus Christ, knowing my maker and my redeemer. That's given me joy. Now, the Spirit can empower you to give answers like that when the world around us does not have answers for the world's mysteries. So be bold. 
Right? Lean into these words in the scripture, for it gives better answers than Pharaoh's magicians can give. That's how it works for all of us who are Christians. For a few of us in the room, though, one of the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament is, is wisdom. And so there are probably a handful of us in the room that people go to for advice because maybe you just know somebody who, man, they, they know stuff. Like they are smart and you can go to them for advice and counsel. And it's not the pop psychology stuff you hear out there. Like it's good biblical insight for life. Well, the Spirit gives to one person this gift and to one person that gift, and to some of us, He gives that gift of great wisdom, even more than a particular Christian often has. And when He does that, He does that for all of us. He gives the gift to one Christian, not for the sake of that Christian, but for the sake of everybody else around that Christian, right? So better to be the one that doesn't have the gift, actually, because then you can go to that person for advice and counsel. Uh, there's something going on in my neighborhood that's working very similarly right now. Our neighbors down the street got a trampoline. And you know what's better than owning a trampoline in your backyard? When your neighbor has a trampoline in the backyard, even better. I was talking to a friend the other day and they, my kids were talking about jumping and they're like, oh, did you get a trampoline? I was like, no, man, even better, my neighbor's got a trampoline. So the kids are down there, they're bouncing on it. And, and spiritual gifts often work like that too. Like we desire them for ourselves, but what's even better is when the person in your Sunday school class has a really pointed gift like that, because then you get to jump on their trampoline, so to speak. You get to enjoy their spiritual gift. If you know somebody in this church who is like that, just full of wisdom, great counsel. They know the Bible through and through. Well, jump on that trampoline. Go ask them for advice. Go, go get everything you can out of them. God put them in this church for you. On the other hand, uh, you might be that person yourself. Maybe people tell you, you know, you really have a unique amount of, of insight into the things of Scripture and into the way the world works and even into the spiritual realm. It seems like God has given you wisdom. And if that's you, the burden on you is to fan that gift into a flame. It, it is not that Jesus just takes a whole bunch of wisdom and just crams it into you in one, you know, big old punch like that. And then now you're just super wise, and so now your job is just to talk a lot. Like, that's not, that's not how it works. Instead, he gives you just a little, a little ember, like just a glowing ember. And your job is to take the fan and fan that into a small flame and then keep fanning it and fan it into a large flame. You do that by seeking God's word even more than you normally would if you didn't have that gift. You do that by finding good Christian books and learning as much as you can, learning as much as you can about the way that the world works, and just gaining knowledge throughout your life so you can give better and better counsel to people. This is a gift that is particularly put on leaders often in the house of God and on preachers. We see that through the scriptures. Joshua rises up as a leader, and uh, the Lord gives him a spirit of wisdom, it says, such that the people followed him and, and did just what he said. They saw how wise he was. Uh, in the New Testament, seven men are appointed to oversee the distribution of food to the widows. And Peter tells them, look for men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. And then they find seven men like this. They put them over it. One of them is named Stephen. And in the next chapter, he preaches powerfully 
And it says they could not withstand the spirit of wisdom that was upon him. Can you imagine that? Man, y'all, I'll just admit, y'all have never been preached to like that. Like, could not withstand the spirit of wisdom that was upon him. That's the sort of thing the spirit does when he gives someone the gift of wisdom and they have fanned it into a flame like that. So, if you think that might be you, fan the gift into a flame and just see what the Lord does with it. Don't go seek out a million people to give advice to. No, that, that's what Joseph did when he was young, right? Just babbling a lot and it didn't work out for him. Now, wise, mature Joseph, he knows when the right time is to give counsel and advice and he gives nuggets of gold when he does it. This is a man that the Spirit has given great wisdom to. And if you're a Christian, the Spirit is equipping you in just the same way. All right, let's look at the other way that Joseph being lifted up points to the church being lifted up today. We skipped down a little bit to the sons that Joseph had. Uh, The Pharaoh was so pleased, he put Joseph over everybody. Uh, He even gave to Joseph a wife, which is a sign in Genesis. God is really blessing somebody. He's given a gift like that from God. Uh, And then during the seven years of plenty, Joseph has two sons. So he holds one son, names him, and he holds a second son and names him during those seven years. And the things he says when he names those sons are very important. The first one is Manasseh, and he says, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Like, this plenty is so good. Like, God has blessed me so much that I almost can't even remember what it feels like to be afflicted like I was before. Just like the seven years of famine are going to make them forget the seven years of plenty. Joseph, on the other hand, is so blessed, he has forgotten what it was like to be afflicted. And then the second son, he names Ephraim, and he says words that we will focus on a lot here. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he looks back now on hard years, well over a decade in Egypt, first as a slave And then lowered into prison as a slave. He's looking back and he's saying, okay, this place has been the land of my affliction. I was forced here. I didn't didn't choose to come here. Yet God has made me fruitful in this dark and hard place. So he names the boy Manasseh, which has that very meaning. So second point we draw then is that God's anointed one will be fruitful in a land of affliction. This has been true of many of those who have been anointed by God already. Uh, Abraham was called away from the promised land a few times because of famine, and he came back every time much more blessed than he left. He gained. He was fruitful every time. And then his son Isaac had to leave the promised land for a while because of a famine, and he gained much while he was away as well. He was very fruitful. Jacob, Joseph's father, had to leave. He was running for his life from his brother who wanted to kill him. And God said, I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. And when Jacob left, he had nothing but his staff and the rock that he laid his head on. He came back a veritable king with so much. While he was gone, in a land where he was afflicted greatly, God made him fruitful and made him much. Now Joseph says the same thing. I was pushed away from my homeland, but God has made me fruitful here. In a few generations, All of his family will live in Egypt, and eventually they will be enslaved there. It'll be a place where they suffer greatly. Egypt will be the land of affliction for the whole nation of Israel. And in that 400 years when they're enslaved, 
they will multiply from 12 brothers to about 2 million people. They will be fruitful in the land of their affliction. Similar things will happen in Babylon when they are taken away to Babylon and the exile. And then we see Jesus come. Here he is on earth, the land where he suffers affliction. There is only one place in all of the universe, the earthly and the heavenly realm, where Jesus Christ has suffered, and that is here on earth. This is the land of his affliction. And yet while he was here, the Spirit was with him. The Spirit rested upon him and made him so fruitful. How many did he heal? How many wonderful sermons did he preach? How many lives were changed? How many were given faith? How many has he saved by his shed blood, which he shed in just a moment? And then when he rose from the dead, how many did he save? He was fruitful in the land of his affliction. That matters for us as the church because the New Testament calls us sojourners in exile. Uh, We are here on earth like Israel was in Egypt or in Babylon, not at home. And maybe that's why you don't feel at home here in the world. It's a wonderful place, and yet it just doesn't feel right. This is probably most pointed to me uh, when I'm at a funeral. If you can imagine the last time you were at a funeral, there's just a sense this isn't right, right? Like this isn't how this is supposed to go. Uh, every time, whether, whether it's, you know, someone who lived a full life and you're still like, that's still not how it's supposed to end. Something's supposed to be different. Sometimes someone untimely and you're thinking, at that age, what is wrong with the world? Something is wrong with the world. And then we look around and we see the the plight of the poor and how many are trying to help them and it is just so difficult because something is just wrong with the world and storms come and knock down your tomato plants that you worked so hard on and just things just aren't right in this place. This is because we're not at home. This is the land of our affliction and many of you are suffering greatly and deeply and you will look back on your time on this earth and say this was a land of affliction for me. If you're a believer in Jesus, though, you can say along with Joseph, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. How much has the church multiplied in these 2,000 years that we have been here on earth? How many of us have been martyred? How many of us have been persecuted for our faith? And yet, fruitful in the land of our affliction. The book of Ephesians tells us to to walk in holiness, just living a strong Christian life in moral purity. Uh, tells us to speak openly of the things of the Lord, to sing to one another, to come to church. And the way it summarizes these things at one point is making the best use of the time for these days are evil. Uh, these days when we are living here on this earth, it's okay to call these evil days. These are hard days. These are dark days where evil men rule all over the world and there is much suffering. But we can make the best use of them. How do we do that? Just living a holy life, talking openly about the things of Jesus, and then looking back after years and saying, what do you know? God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In these evil days, the Lord used me to make the best of these evil days. This kind of shatters a myth for us because We tend to think that if we're going through hardship and suffering, 
then we don't have the bandwidth to be fruitful, right? Like things have got to be going well, things have got to be easy in life, and then I've got the bandwidth to be fruitful and do something for the Lord. And Paul says the exact opposite there. Make the best use of the evil days. Joseph says, in the time of my affliction, the land of my affliction, the Lord made me fruitful. And this reminds us that we don't have to go out and like take in some super productivity system that somebody sold a book about at Amazon and and be some super hyper productive person in order to make the best use of the evil days. No, simply walking a holy life, looking to Jesus in faith and talking openly about him, you will be surprised at how fruitful God will make you. Uh, Let me give you an example. Let's say that, um, I hope this never happens to you, but let's say that six months from now you have just an awful health scare, something that just totally debilitates your ability to contribute to anything. And you're in a hospital and you, you want to do things for the Lord, but you just can't even get up out of the bed, right? And, uh, you know, a few people from church come and visit you and you, you are being cared for instead of caring for others, which is a tough experience. Uh, and then um, after, let's say your deacon comes to visit you and then your deacon leaves. And let's say the nurse says to you, oh, who was that Who's that person who visited you? And you just, you know, because it's on your mind, you say, oh, that was my deacon at church. Um, yeah, they, they do a great job caring for us, and it just reminds me how much Jesus loves me. And then you roll over on the bed, and that's the end of that, right? And the nurse says, huh. Now, now you probably didn't feel very fruitful in that moment, but the Lord might use that in that nurse's life to say, oh, Like, I just saw someone come in and visit a sick person and show the love of Christ. I think I understand what these people believe a little better now. So you might look back on that time and say, in that month, in that six months of affliction, the Lord has made me fruitful. You don't need to be strong. You don't need to be powerful. Just live a holy life and speak openly of the things of Jesus. Joseph modeled that fruitfulness through obedience Whatever was entrusted to him, he did it faithfully. He worked in wisdom. God was with him, and God gave him much. If you are younger and and you've got that weight of the world on you, I just want to relieve that this morning. What I mean is I know young people are raised, and I was raised in a world, I think young people today even more so, where we were basically told that we were going to have to save the world. Like global warming is going over here, AI is happening over here, who knows what's going on with that. Whatever side of the political aisle you've been trained to hate, we got to stop those guys, whichever one it is. Like it's all going to be on us and our generation. We've got to fix everything. And the Lord just takes that burden off of you and says, no, you, you don't actually have to save the world. Just live a holy life, speak openly about the things of Jesus And let the Lord make you fruitful in this dark land of affliction. Same thing for those of you who are older. I know some of you, uh, I'm so encouraged by many of you older saints will say, I have heard older saints say in the last week of their lives, well, I know God's not done with me yet, right? I'm still here. God's got a purpose for me. And I know you're saying that in faith because it feels like sometimes, what else could I do? What we need you to do is walk in faithfulness and speak openly of the things of Jesus so that you can look back and say, in those hard years, the Lord made me fruitful. And when the lights get dim and you have nothing left to offer us, you have one, less, one gift left to offer us, and that is the gift of dying with 
faith in Jesus Christ. If you can give us that gift, if you can go home to God shouting, the Lord will provide, my hope is in him. Friend, you don't have to be strong to do great things for Jesus. The Lord will make you fruitful even in that moment of affliction. So the dark hours, the hard hours, those, those aren't the times when you get a pass and you, and you don't have to be fruitful for the Lord. No, just trust him, walk in holiness, and let him make you fruitful. So there are two ways that Joseph points to the ways that the church is glorified today. Jesus is glorified even now and was on earth. He lifts us up by giving us spirit-empowered wisdom. He lifts us up by making us fruitful in our times of affliction. He did those things for his son, Jesus. And if you're one of his children, he's doing them for you as well. Church, be encouraged. That Jesus, the one with that level of wisdom who had all the answers, he is yours forever. And you're going to spend eternity enjoying him. That Jesus whose ministry we read about and we say, wow, look at what he did. He was fruitful. He did things. That Jesus, Christian, he is yours forever, and you will spend eternity enjoying him. If you are here right now this morning and you're saying, that sounds wonderful. I would like that, but I don't have that. I want you to know that, that this Jesus can be yours even today and forever. Uh, he has come to earth, died a sinner's death, and risen from the dead to guarantee all who would trust in him salvation from their sins and eternal life forever. If you can look at this Jesus and say, that sounds wonderful, he sounds wonderful, I want him Friend, put the world aside and come to him. Receive him and put your faith in him. You'll find in him fullness of the spirit, joy in all of your sorrows. You'll still have sorrows, but you have joy in them. You'll find in him forgiveness for your sins, equipping, even gifting to be fruitful for him, and so much more. So I ask you, I plead with you, I beg you, come to Jesus Christ and find so much in him. Well, let's pray together.